0: November 11th. If you find people unreceptive to your wit, don't bludgeon them with it. Having offered a thought in fun, retain your good spirits. Be kind, but respect others' right to see things their own way. Yes, it's quite depressing, isn't it, to say something so clever and then not have uh, anybody respond. I remember, let's see, uh, my my nephew when he was young he had a very big vocabulary and uh you know my his mother tried to coax him because you know little children little boys especially just punch each other and things like that and she um she tried to get him to use his words rather than just punching at each other as little boys do so the next day when he was having some little altercation with one of his kindergarten buddies he called the lad mentally deficient <laughs> <laughs> but he came home and told his mother that it didn't work at all because he was so mentally deficient he didn't know he was being insulted. <laughs> so she had to work with him to find another way to do it. I mean that is not exactly using your wit, but it is, I mean your wit in the sense of your humor. But there is just this reality, sometimes we just we just don't we're not on the same wavelength with people, especially where humor is concerned. Um, i it, it's very interesting. My brother and I both have exactly the same sense of humor. And I, I've learned that my sense of humor is a little odd. I think everybody's sense of humor is a little odd, but perhaps mine a little more so. And my brother and I, after I turned 18, he, he left home at 18. I left home at 18. He's older than I. And we didn't really see each other very much until the circumstances brought us together In our, when I was 50, actually, quite a bit later. And By that time, I'd had a lot of life experience. I had lots of friends. And I had learned to understand that that which I think is funny is not... not everybody thinks it's funny. They just don't see the twist in it like like I do. And then my brother and I were living together for like a month or two months. And it was just amazing to me to be with someone whose sense of humor was exactly, I mean, exactly like mine. And I'm going to just tell you this silly joke, and you might think it's funny or not, but he and I both it became a joke that we can still laugh at. There was a store in downtown Palo Alto, and this, you know, times have changed, and the city of Palo Alto is gentrified. I don't know if that store is still there. It was called The Foam Store, and it sold, surprise, surprise, foam. It sold foam pads, you know, foam pillows, everything. Everything was like that. So the store is called the Foam Store. It has windows, and it's not very genteel, store. it just piles up all kinds of foam. And then they have a little motto in the window with quotes around it, which is, we got foam. <laughs> now, I don't know why. I thought that was the funniest thing I ever saw. I said it to my brother. Both of us were just in stitches. Just who knows why. Humor is very weird. But to this day, I could hardly tell you the story without just getting going into hysterics. Now, almost no one thinks that's very funny, but I think it's very funny, and my brother thinks it's very funny. I don't know why, something in our mother's milk, you know, that just made us both feel that way. We are both writers, so maybe that's part of it. But still, you just, there's no accounting for it. And then sometimes humor is a little unkind, and people don't appreciate it because it's unkind, or you're exhibiting more undercurrent of feeling than you even know that you're exhibiting. That's happened to me on a number of occasions where I didn't know that I was ruffling feathers. I thought I was just being funny. But Swami just warns us, if people don't, don't get your sense of humor, don't think that if you just keep leaning on him, they'll keep getting it. I tried to tell a number of people about the foam store. It took more than one before I realized that nobody thinks this is funny. And it wasn't until I got to my brother and I just intuitively knew that he would like it, that I was able to tell it to him. And then even thereafter we could, we riffed, is the word I want to use, we improvised off of the same theme and found all the subsequent riffs off of that basic melody. We found all of those funny too. But nobody else did, really. Nobody else did. So there's just no, you can't make it work. In fact, it it becomes very aggravating to people. Now this goes a whole lot farther than just wit. Swami's talking here about humor. But I, I, um, there was a certain friend that I know, and I, I love her. I still love her. She was unable to believe that you didn't hold the same opinion about basically everything that she held an opinion about. So if you ever disagreed with her, and her, and her opinions were eccentric... So it wasn't like her opinion, opinions were mainstream and obvious. Her opinions were often really off the wall and even her it just, you know, she was not in the in the center of other people's realities, but she was absolutely convinced that the only reason you disagreed with her is because you hadn't yet understood what she meant. And so if you didn't accept what she said, you would be subjected to yet another explanation of what it was. In, there was a certain uh, point in our community where we were having a, a massive difference of opinion about some fairly serious things. And there was a, a little kerfuffle among some people who got quite rebellious against the leadership. And they um, were sort of said to the leadership, eventually it, it worked itself out to the leadership, you're not listening to us, you're not listening. And then one of those who was accused said very quietly and very straightforward, oh, I'm listening. I'm listening very carefully. I just don't agree. And yeah, that's what happens. It's not that I'm not listening. It's not that I haven't heard you. It's that I don't agree with you. What can I do? I just don't think you're right. And you can keep explaining it to me from yet another angle saying the same thing, but it's not going to persuade me. You know, we oftentimes, even very good people, just have differences of opinion. At Ananda, we've had a long-standing policy which actually works very well. We're not a democracy. Um, A democracy is where truth is voted by the majority. I was um, intrigued, but not inspired, by um, some convocation of clergy people or theologians from some Protestant denomination who went through the Bible and there you know, I don't even know, there's various controversies about various things, and they voted about what was genuinely Jesus' teaching and what wasn't. And whatever the majority felt, that became the definition of what Jesus taught. I thought, oh dear, you know, merely because eleven people vote for something, eleven people can all be wrong together. <laughs> it's just the sheer numbers of people does not create wisdom, in fact collective mass ignorance is extremely common. It's not that democracy is a bad system, but wisdom is not numbers. Everybody agrees with us. It must be true. I think that was in the Jungle Book. We all say it's true, so it must be true. I think that's how the monkeys made decisions. We all say it's true, so it must be true. I mean, that was meant to be a snide remark. And by contrast to that, when Swami Kriyananda wrote Revelations of Christ, which is a, 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 a I would call it a guidebook for understanding the Bible. He he comments on many verses of the Bible, but it's really helping us to understand how to understand what Jesus taught. And Swamiji puts forward a very simple criteria because nowadays the Swami writes in the introduction, you know, the, the, what Jesus taught, what the true teachings of Christianity are are in the hands of theologians, academicians, um, institutions, novelists, you know, movie makers. People are just saying whatever they want to say and then just asserting it is true. And Swami's premise, which is the premise of Sanat and Dharma, which is that self-realization and enlightenment is a progressive experience. And when a soul shares the consciousness of Christ or stands on the threshold of where Jesus was standing, that it's the saints, it's the enlightened ones who can tell us what enlightened beings mean by what they teach. The mere fact that a hundred academicians tell you this is what Jesus taught doesn't mean anything because they're speaking from their level of enlightenment, which is generally quite distant from Jesus's level. So the saints. Are the ones who have the rights to right to speak, and that, you know, that's how truth is discerned by revelation rather than by majority vote. And um, when we were in Siena, I believe it was or it was some Italian city. Now, I, I, Siena is where Saint Catherine lived, so I don't think it was there, it, it, but it could have been. It doesn't make any difference. And we went into this church. Swamiji was with us. We were with a group on a pilgrimage through holy places in Italy. And this church told the story of how uh, some centuries before there, there was a relic, and the relic was a sanctified host, the, little, the wafer that is part of the Catholic mass, or the, the mass, others besides Catholics follow the mass, where the wafer has been sanctified so that it is transmuted from being merely flower and water, and it becomes the, the the living presence of Jesus. And it's easy for an intellectual person to just dismiss that as some kind of a superstition. But it's very interesting, for example, Therese Neumann, who uh, bore on her body the marks of Christ, the, she was a stigmatist, she bore the marks of Christ, and for many years of her life, every Friday, she would literally re-experience the crucifixion of Christ. She would she would walk with Jesus and watch him die, and it was in autobiography of a yogi. There's a whole chapter, Thérèse Neumann, um, that master visited her in Bavaria, in far northern Germany, where she lived. I presume it's northern, north, and uh, um, he went. He went. He was there for her vision, and he went himself into a superconscious state and experienced what she experienced. Now, an oddity of Therese Neumann is that she never ate or drank anything. for so from the age of a young age, she never ate or drank anything and she was in perfect health. And she just said it was what God wanted to do with her. The only thing she would ingest was the wafer, the holy wafer from the Catholic Mass. But, if it had not been sanctified by the priest, she couldn't swallow it she'd put it in her mouth, and she 'd immediately have to spit it out and They you know that she was tested they tried to trick her if it had been sanctified by the priest and therefore had become symbolic of the presence of Christ, she could ingest it if it was just flour and water, she couldn't take it in. she had to spit it out. So back to this story in in Italy um, the story was that some thieves had stolen some sanctified wafers. So from the point of view, especially those many centuries ago, you know, the the mind of the people, I mean, this was Christ himself who had been stolen. And it was just a terrible thing that this had happened, that, you know, they, they were responsible and now it had been stolen. I mean, the citizens felt responsible. So the way the story is told is they all prayed that the wafers be returned and they were miraculously returned this is it was a miracle they were returned i mean did somebody sneak them in in the night i don't know but they came back swami's response was there must have been a saint praying he said because even hundreds of people with with no spiritual power in themselves does not create power was this is a very interesting point it just creates more of whatever vibration they have, which doesn't mean that it's nothing, but they, the mere the mere adding of numbers does not change the essential vibration. It's a very interesting point. He said there had to have been a saint praying, because that saint then had the power to lift the energy up to the divine. Now, you can have a mass of people, many of whom are deeply pious, and, and create that kind of energy, but it's not because of the numbers it's because of the consciousness. Very interesting point, isn't it? So, what we're working with with all of this, which has taken us a long way from bad jokes and um, the foam store with its funny motto, you know, is that we can only we can only be what we are. We can only understand what we are. People will just pick up truth from wherever they pick it up, and it, it doesn't serve you if people don't understand. Wit is a very good example. If people don't understand what it is you're trying to convey, saying it louder and more emphatically. I'm always amused by when people are not being well understood, sometimes they'll just say the same thing louder. And just, they say it in frustration. But I've been the recipient of that. It's like somebody will say something I, I don't understand, and they'll repeat exactly the same words, but in a louder volume. It's their frustration. That's what he means by bludgeon. You're just trying to bludgeon people into getting to understand where you just have to pull back. You have to pull back and settle quietly into yourself and and ask yourself, you know, what am I trying to accomplish here? And God, how can I serve? And be respectful, be kind, but you you just can't persuade unless people are ready to receive. So if you find people unreceptive to your wit, don't bludgeon them with it Having offered a thought in fun, retain your good spirits. Be kind, but respect others' rights to see things in their own way. Joy to you. Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support Asha, you can make a one-time donation or, for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.